This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, you founders, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Dave Wessinger, CEO and co-founder of Point Click Care, a healthcare technology company that's raised more than half a billion in funding. Dave, thanks for chatting with me today. You got it. Happy to be here. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Okay. Well, Dave Wessinger, I'm now the CEO of Point Click Care, and I co-founded it with my brother. And in terms of background, found my way, making it through as a solid C-plus student in university in CompSci and kind of set me up for you know, being part of the growth of a technology company, but the background was tech and quite frankly, the desire was to build video games as any young man probably wants to do and found myself in love with healthcare when I got involved in it. And I'm happy to talk more about that, but uh, I spent my formative years and my early days kind of learning about a space and, and figured a way to kind of put my, my passion in technology to work with blending with healthcare and, and partnering with one of my three brothers to, uh, to kind of envision what Point Quick Care now is. What was that like working so closely with a family member? I'm sure that couldn't be easy <laughs> at times. How'd you guys separate family from business? You know, we kind of, I don't know that we ever really did, which we actually made it really fun. But what I think is unique and interesting about that is, first of all, there's there's three brothers in our family. Only two of us could work together. We're the middle two. So I don't need to go into Freakonomics about how that works, but it is kind of interesting how that started out. But what uh, we also talked about was my mother was in the business at the time. And in fact, was the one that got us, you know, in 94, we're all looking for jobs. She happened to be in a, a position where she's able to help us find that role in healthcare. And she ended up becoming part of the business as well. And so her and I are designing pieces of the product and yelling at each other. And, you know, let's, let's just say in, the, in, in a respectful way, as we know, there's no challenges building software. But, um, you know, there's a point at which I think we had this argument and somehow my mother ended up going home. And my brother looks at me and goes, did you just fire mom? I'm like, uh, sure, I don't think so. <laughs> I guess I should probably give her a call. Luckily at the time, I think I was still living with her. So it's like, hey mom, are we still good? And uh, all went well. But I think the one thing that I've appreciated over the years, I look back and I don't know if I recognized it as much, the Venn diagram of what Mike and I knew was so small and just the inherent trust in each other that we always had each other's back. And so he was sales, marketing, finance. I was all things engineering, product delivery. And there is really no kind of micromanagement or kind of what are you doing? Or, you know, we had the freedom to move and trust that each other is doing what they needed to do. And I think that that helped us have the speed we needed to, to kind of move and address those market needs. Because at the top, there is never a question of why we're there or what we we're doing or what our commitment was to each other. So I think there's Listen, I think it carries over into life and kind of how you work together in your kind of personal relationship and business. But it, it was, listen, we were together 18 hours a day. So there wasn't a lot of time for other stuff, I guess. But um, yeah, it was it was really interesting. And I think one of the superpowers we had in the early days. Wow, super cool. And a couple of other quick questions that we like to ask. And the goal here is really just to try to better understand, you know, what makes you tick and, and where that inspiration comes from. So first question, what founder or CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Uh, gosh, I admire all of them. Uh, anybody who's brave enough or dumb enough to do that job has to be appreciated. And I, I think, you know, clearly have a, a ton of appreciation for my brother who was the CEO of this business for about 22 years, learned a ton from him. But if I go outside of our business, 
there's one individual that kind of caught me as, and I'll talk about why, but Aaron Ains from UKG, I think it was originally Kronos before the merger. He was a CEO that just had unbelievably humble, courageous. He did things that you'd kind of scratch your head and go, what? Uh, the board kind of questioning a few things that worked out unbelievably well, but he had the courage to kind of try things because he knew it was the right thing and he was committed to it. And that to me is, that's a CEO having that courage to go and do things that doesn't seem obvious to others. And he did that in spades and he grew a great business and he has an unbelievable culture. And if you approach him and talk about it, he's super humble about that and his journey. And he definitely, you know, points to others in terms of why they were successful. But he wrote the book, Work Inspired, which is a great read if anybody's interested. But um, anytime I've needed to reach out and get, you know, he's multiple quarters ahead of us in terms of size and growth. And for Mike or I to reach out and say, Aaron, you got a few minutes for us. You got a few questions, a few things you're struggling with. Literally same day that afternoon, he's like, got you anytime. Let me know. I'm on the phone and I'm happy to help you guys. So to me, the ability for someone to grow a great business, be humble enough to be able to support and and when others that are trying to do something similar ask for some help to be available and, and care about helping them and mentoring, that to me is what this this network of CEOs can really do for each other. And he has that in spades. And so I, I've always really, really liked that about him. Is that something that you do as well? Are you doing a lot of mentoring for up and coming CEOs and up and coming entrepreneurs? I try to. I think, you know, Mike's definitely doing a lot more of that now. He's had a lot more time in the seat. I'm still learning the job, to be quite honest. And so Whenever I ask my opinion, I'm like, you sure you want that? <laughs> to be quite honest. So kind of working into the, uh, where I might be able to offer help, but we're so focused and spending so much time on our business. That said though, when I do have some time, our investors and in our portfolio companies have some, you know, some round tables or things where I can be helpful to or share experiences. And, you know, anytime I've asked, I'm, I'm always available. Let's put it that way. I just, uh, working on the ask part. So <laughs> it'll come. Now, another thing we like to also ask about are books, and we stole this from someone else, but they defined it as a quick book, and I really love this idea. So they said a quick book is a book that really just like rocks you to your core and influences how you think about the world and, and really changes your worldview. Do any books like that come to mind that really played a key role in shaping who you are? Yeah, I think so. Kind of a funny story on that one. And I think just for all CEOs, I think you know, I'm looking over at my ledge near my office, like 40 books there, all related to kind of things that will help accelerate drive our business forward. And there's so many things to learn from that I wouldn't really nail it down to one book in general. I think just being apt at making sure you spend time on a variety of things and contextualize them for your business. But to get to the actual question, yeah, there is one book that I actually feel like we co-authored, even though we had no part of it, Huge fan of Jeffrey Moore. And at the time, what really resonated was Crossing the Chasm and then right behind it inside the tornado. And I swear, and we spent a bit of time with Jeffrey Moore since. As we go back, I feel like we could have written that book with him. It was true to form and every challenge we had and exactly how we thought about our business was there in script, like he was sitting alongside us documenting it. And it was unbelievably helpful in our ability to kind of digest and understand what's happening around us and have the patterns that we would never have understood outside of experience would have been very costly to help put that plan together for our business to be successful. So I point to him time and time again, when it depends on what stage you're at, what's most important, but crossing the chasm for those newer startups in tech, I still think has great applicability today. And we referenced that constantly uh, through our business. It gave us a great way to have 
uh, to have a similar language in the business so that we can all kind of reference, understand, and, and apply it. So that was a nice grounding opportunity. The other ones that really played a huge part for us, Blue Ocean, Blink, Good to Great, Email. You know, Blue Ocean was a big one in terms of how do you differentiate? What's unique about you? And if you can't explain that, you're in a red ocean, that's going to be a bad thing. So all of them have great things to offer and just take them in context. I wouldn't try to apply any one of them literally, but uh, it's just good insight. The Patrick one's the only one that I think the most recent one that I've really enjoyed was the Advantage. And I really like that one because it really talks about team, strategic pillars, kind of getting priorities right and getting kind of whole team moving forward together. Uh, great read, really helpful. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of things up there I could talk about, but those are things I would point to that I think we've used over the years, but, um, we certainly won't stop. And it's just a constant source of, of information that's super helpful. Yeah. I first read Crossing the Chasm and I think it would have been like 2015, 2016 and a mentor recommended the book to me. And I remember looking and saying like, this was published in the early nineties. What is oh, happening yeah. now? It's way old, too outdated. Like there's no <laughs> point, but fine, I'll read it. And it turns out I was an idiot. You know, very, very applicable to everything that's going on in tech. And I, I find that just to be so fascinating that it could be a book that was written quite a long time ago, but it's so relevant to today. I think that's just fascinating that it's, yeah, at the end of the day, it's, it's tech and it's, you know, people, it's all the same stuff, regardless of the time period. I think that what's constant is disruption, right? And so we've got this huge wave that occurred in, in 99, 2000 that allowed companies like ourselves to kind of catch that wave and those that were slow missed it. And I think we're starting to get into kind of the next wave of where is AI going to take us and how do you take advantage of that and not get disrupted? But disruption is a real thing that you either need to defensive or offensive about. And, you know, it really is uniquely positioning the things that you have to differentiate in the markets you, you're in. And, you know, simple principles of if you're not winning more than 40% of the market, you know, tighten your beachhead, right? Get minimize that segment to the point where you are winning that much because it's too expensive to lose 90% of the time, right? You don't have that, the resources to do that at that size. You, at our size, you don't have that. So a lot of those principles, I think, ring true regardless of size of business. And there's a lot of great lessons to be learned in there that are still applicable. I agree with you, Brett. Yep. Now let's switch gears here and let's dive deeper into the company. So just to start us off, for those who aren't aware of what Point Click Claire does, can you just talk us through at a very, very high level what you do? Well, first of all, the name came from, we were trying to figure out the best tongue twister for a name of organization. <laughs> so it's such a funny thing, but yeah, Point Click Claire can be a tongue twister for a lot of people who haven't said it a thousand times, but um, yeah, what we do has evolved over the years. We started as a SaaS-based company of which at the time we couldn't spell SaaS. So delivering a bunch of stuff over the internet and having and asking our customers to pay us every day. But it was really focused on the senior care industry. And so think about the technology required to run a nursing home or a assisted living or a congregate setting like that. That's what our solution does. Clinical, financial, reporting, all of that. And that uh, has clearly advanced over the years, but that was focus number one. And we've evolved into a business that recognized that we needed to cross the other side into the acute care and really create a care collaboration network where we could provide and inform care providers to provide the best care possible to their patients. And so we ended up acquiring our way into the largest care collaboration network. And you add to that the large footprint we have in senior care to really improve transitions of care and ensure that information is moving through both acute and post-acute care so that the patients that are moving through it on their journey, their care providers have great insights and information at the moment they arrive in care 
think of it as like we're an electronic advocate uh, for those that can't advocate for themselves in that scenario. I'm glad I'm not the only one who considers that a tongue twister. As I've said the name twice, like, what's wrong with my brain? I can't say it. Glad I'm not the first one. <laughs> oh, yeah, not even close. We'd love it. Just for you know context as well, can you try to paint a picture of like the scale and the size that you're operating at? In the intro, I mentioned there that you've raised over half billion. So that's helpful context. But anything else you can share just so the audience can grasp just how big this operation is? Because I know it's massive. Yeah, I think, you know, large, I guess it's all in context. For us, it seems big. It's the biggest company I've run every day, going from two of us in a garage to the size we are today, which is about 2,100 people from a revenue perspective. We're, you know, we're, we're north of half a billion and on our way to, on our way well north of that. And I think you know, the other things we think about in the business are, I think from a metrics perspective is kind of rule of 50 and happy to talk more about why that's important. But rule of 50, we look at it as if you take profit plus growth, what everyone kind of looks for today is this magic number of 50. And we're, that's a number we, we kind of hold true to. And you can get there by, you know, 70% growth and, you know, negative 20% profitability. That's not how we think about it. We've always run a good business. And I think anybody there thinking about how the tides change in terms of valuation of businesses. And we've had, you know, a bit of a shock to the system this last year, which led to everybody trying to get to even a positive because companies, SaaS companies are more valued on profitability than they ever have been. And so you've seen a, a huge change and a huge shift. And I think you've seen the, the supply change materially on kind of engineers or, or people because so many of these companies had to right size and think differently about how their business in rule of 50 is kind of one of those contracts that I think, you know, stays true in the, in the test of time. And so, but so we're in that category, we've always thought about running a good business and driving kind of some level of profitability and continuing to drive growth. So that's, you know, I, I think growth wise, we were for, I think 20 plus years at 35% compounded annual growth. I think we've started to slow a little bit. I think we're over the next, you know, three to five years, we're probably in the, the teens, the high teens growth would be the expectation. So still kind of a growing company. And yeah, we just, I guess, scale wise for us, it, it feels really big, but um, it depends where you're coming from, a company of two or a company of 20,000. And are there any numbers you can share just in terms of like the number of post-acute care homes that are using the platform today? Yeah. So there's, uh, I think 27,000 facilities on our platform that would include, you know, on the skilled nursing side, there's roughly 15,000 in the U.S. and less than that, obviously, in Canada. But we operate on both sides of the border. In fact, we started in Ontario or Canada. What's interesting, care is carried, actually. Thing on both sides of the border, it's just paid for differently. And so, yeah, about 27 care facilities. And we, through our care collaboration network, there's more than 100 million patients that move through that on an annual basis. What percentage of the market do you own then? Do you know? Yeah, we do know. I'm always cautious to say it. Uh, we've worked from basically zero on this. I'll just talk about the skilled nursing market. We have 70% of that market. In Ontario, I think we have 98%. In Ohio, we have 90%. So our, there are areas where we do really well. And I think it's, you know, we've just been at it for so long and we've really focused on our brand and, and how we show up and the solutions we offer that it's just, it's resonated really well. And it just continues to grow on itself. The customers we have are the ones that are growing and doing reasonably well, and they bring more business with them. So we continue to serve the market, I think, really well. And in the early days, if I had said it, I thought we'd get to that market share, I'd be lying to myself. But I think, you know, it's exactly when you go to crossing the chasm. And he says it this way, it's probably not appropriate anymore. But, um, you know, you have the gorilla 
what does he say? A gorilla, a few chimps, and a bunch of monkeys. And that's how every technology kind of breaks down. And we've always wanted to be that gorilla, kind of having dominant market share whenever market we decide to go after. So that's roughly how that, the market share breaks down. You know, senior living, probably 40% of that market. And I think probably 50 to 60% of the care collaboration space. Wow. And I want to talk a little bit about the early days. So if I have the timeline right, you graduated university in 94 and you started the company in 97. So how old were you when you founded the company? Were you like 22, 23? Oh, I wish. Uh, yeah, no, I'm way older than that. Well, not way older, definitely older. I would have been 26 when we started. And the interesting thing about that one, I look back and what the hell was I thinking? I think to start a company, I mean, you certainly have to believe, but you have to be just dumb enough to go and do it. And I think I was definitely in that category. I had, you know, two kids under two and one on the way. Uh, we had just moved out a few years ago from my parents' place. You know, it's not uncommon, I would hope, so don't judge. But then, uh, you know, living in a, a town hall and brother Mike and I kind of put this together. It's like, hey, let's, let's be partners and do this thing. I'm like, great. Sounds awesome. Yeah, call my wife. And it's like, hey, guess what? It's like, so you just left a real job that actually paid us and you're now going to go do what? Like, yeah, no, I think it's going to work out. <laughs> well, now listen, if it doesn't work out, we'll just move back in with mom. She's like, holy shit, this better work out. <laughs> so a little bit of pressure. But uh, yeah, I think the other part too is we were not well fueled. So, you know, if I were to start a business today, you know, I have some luxuries in life that at the time I sure as heck didn't have. And I, there's no way I could be as gritty or do things on kind of the shoestring budget that we did back then. The expectations were just a little higher. And so I, I always talk about, you know, what kills a startup is a well-funded startup because <laughs> you just learn to be super gritty. So yeah, it's funny as I think back to those days and would I be able to do that again? For a lot of reasons, no. And I think if we were to take some advisement, use some consulting, they would tell us we're complete idiots to go into a market that is 100% saturated with other vendors and one dominant. You're not going to go anywhere. And we were just, we just had this unbelievable belief that we could change the game. And lo and behold, we caught away. So, yeah, interesting times. What was like the market insight that you saw to say, yep, this is an opportunity that we can solve or needs to be solved? And you, what do you see in the market to even know that this was a thing? I think it's not uncommon with entrepreneurs to look for and see opportunities that are different than what other people might see. And so I actually, my four years were working on a nursing home floor and I had tea and coffee with the residents as kind of our clinicians came by and I saw how they were charting using technology and how poor that was, how much they complained about it. I, I was the IT guy, right? I just happened to have I wasn't in an office somewhere. I was actually in the building watching technology work or not work. Like I'm looking around going, they're way, way underserviced by tech right now. They don't have a single tech person in the building outside of me, but typically they wouldn't have one and nothing's working. I'm like, I, I kind of think we can do this a little better and they're not really even using new talk. And I think we can put this on the web. I know they're not there to do tech. They're there to provide care. And so we just, you know, we created a problem for them. And so with that mindset, it was just always had the belief that we could do something differently and better. And I, there, there wasn't a point that Mike and I looked at her and said, uh, you know, we think somebody else is doing it better. Gosh, you know, is this even going to work out? It's like 100% it's going to work out. This is a big problem. We're solving it. They appreciate it. We're iterating super quick. We are absolutely solving a material problem. And 
I think the realization was, wow, this has broad applicability if we think about it the right way. And so listen, I, I, some of it was a, a little bit lucky. Timing was definitely lucky, but you know, and there's a lot of people that work hard that don't have the same outcome. It's, there's gotta be a little bit of timing, a little bit of luck in there too. And when I was doing my research online, I, I found some articles that referenced your valuation. And I think the last one I saw was from this time last year, and it was a $5 billion valuation. So a few questions about that. When you were first starting the company, was that like in the back of your mind? Did you say, I'm going to build a billion dollar company or a multi-billion dollar company? Like, was that the level of like intention you had? And like, is that how big you were thinking about this or like when did, where did that was this like an accident or like was this like very intentional that this you know it happened the way it did? I think it depends who you ask. I think Brother Mike was thinking world domination, and he was the one making promises, and I was the one delivering to some extent. So when I got to come out of that dark room into the light, it was you know I, I would think about that a little bit. But you know I think it's again it's relative. I I think what's interesting about founders, I think you get so passionate about solving a problem. That's the number one thing you want to do. Did I understand the financial? the P&L that understand the financial statements, absolutely did I care about them? Absolutely not. What I cared about was delivering a great solution to the market, iterating and growing and adding more capability over time. And so you you kind of get caught up in your passion and your baby. That can be problematic at times if you don't think more commercially, but it was never really about, are we going to have this, this kind of impact? Are we going to be the size? Are we going to build this value? It was certainly nice when we didn't have personal guarantees on the mortgage. That took a long time to kind of relieve that. But, you know, it's a little bit of that pressure, but I think we're always hopeful, but I wouldn't say that when we started, I would clearly tell you, you know, the fact that we got to a point where we were worth a million dollars felt like we had won the lottery. And, you know, after that, it was like, Hey, you know, we're just going to keep doing this because this is what we want to do. And those rewards are just, you know, those are nice, but that's not why we're doing it. Something that I've heard from a lot of the other founders we've had on who have built billion dollar plus companies is they say that, you know, valuation can become a major distraction. They said that can happen for their team and and even for themselves, because that's obviously a big number, a lot of zeros there. Have you had that issue at all where, you know, the valuation and the funding becomes a distraction? And if so, what have you done to counter that and ensure that you remain just as focused as you were in those early days? I think it's culture matters, mission matters. And if you make it about money, it'll be about money and people will be, you know, again, being private, it's not like we have a ticker or things like that. So you don't really get caught up in it. And even though we have, you know, a thousand shareholders and, you know, most of those are employees, we don't have kind of people aren't caught up in that. They're just, it's about having a piece of the business and then that's more important necessarily. And yeah, there's great value growing there, but that's never really been the focus. So I think you can get caught up in that being private does, does help in that regard. But, you know, I think for us, when we think about what we do and, and how we celebrate, we don't celebrate that, you know, we got to $100 million of revenue and we had this much fun. We talk about the lives we impact and what we're, how we're disrupting the status quo and improving the world and making it a better place. And that's why we're here. That's the people we want to attract. Those are things we want to do. And, and I think it really is what you get focused on. And so if you want to be a numbers company or mercenaries, you're going to get people that are just there to kind of and the behavior won't line up with kind of, I think what you're trying to do if your mission is that noble. So I think culture has been really important from the very beginning. We want to attract the people that really, that care about the mission wrong, that care about the people we serve, that will do the right thing. And you get that when you have mission front and center and you get people aligned around the values that are the right things for your business. And that just happened to be 
the way we wanted to operate and the things we valued. And so, like I say, a nice byproduct is that there's a lot of people doing really well and should, but that's not necessarily what we celebrate. You remember the day that you first crossed the $1 billion threshold? Like, was that a meaningful day at all for you or was it just, just another day? I don't actually remember. And again, you know, valuations are fickle, right? So you always think you're worth probably 10 times more than you are because <laughs> you find the, the most optimal valuation you can find of a SaaS company at one point, the one for 30 times forward revenue. And so you have these, these crazy kind of, Hey, what if, listen, I think there's a point at which if you can pay your mortgage and you're kind of financially stable, you kind of stop thinking about it. And I think that's when I stopped thinking about it. You know, I could, I didn't have to worry about making a mortgage payment. I could put gas in my car. I knew we would be in reasonably good shape. And then it was like, okay, let's go do this. And got, I could actually get a lot more focused on where we need to go with a little bit of stability. So again, I, I think others probably think that way. Uh, I think it's a nice thing to talk about, but you know, it's, it is a reflection of us doing the right thing, I guess. So it is nice to think about, but yeah, it's just never really been about the money. And I don't think it ever will be for me as I think today. I could have not had a job for the last 10 years. I'd have been set for life. But, you know, for me, I think, and I think, you know, founders do have a little bit of pixie dust around them. You don't have to question why I'm here or why I'm leaving. I, I'm here because I want to be here because it's the one thing I want to do when I wake up every day. And you can't question my intent of, oh, I want to develop some skills and go run another business. I actually want to do this job. I want to lead this company and I want to deliver more solutions to the market to really solve a meaningful problem that nobody else is solving. So, Again, when you talk about money, it kind of sours all of that. It's like, well, I'm not here for that. And I hope others, you know, that get comfortable aren't here for that either. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. Now, something else I want to ask about is the fact that, you know, starting this company at 26 years old, I know my state of mind when I was 26, I wasn't thinking in like these long horizons and you're what, almost three decades <laughs> in when you were 26, was that the mindset? Did you say, I'm going to build hey, I'm gonna start a company here that I'm going to be running for the next 30 years or what was that mindset at the time? Oh gosh, time rules memory. So I'll try to, I'll try to go back there. But I think the way I thought about the time was, and if you recall, there was this kind of this dot boom, dot bust. The concept was let's start this company, let's go and man, we'll get this crazy evaluation and then we can go do what we really want to do and cash out. So I, I think it was very short sighted initially. And then it was like, oh shit, this isn't going to work out. I guess we're really going to have to do this for a while. And I think once you get in the game and for anybody who's been in healthcare and specifically in post-acute care, you kind of grow to love it. And it's really hard to leave. And I think at the time it was, you know, make some money and run because that's what I think at that age we were kind of conditioned to is, is go, go public and make your money. But then it turned into, gosh, there's a lot more here to that. And then it turned into, a, I think, a, a longer term a longer term focus. But the question I think that's always rang true for me is when are we going to grow, you know, the leaders? When am I going to be able to grow and when am I not a fit for this organization? I, I kind of assumed that would happen 15 years ago, but somehow magically I'm still here. And so I think that's a, a testament to just really caring about the team and the mission and building a, a really good company and being kind of uh, just connected to the people, connected to the, and, and for me, there's the reason I'm here is I feel like there's just so much more to do. And I've made 
I made commitments. I feel responsible that at the size we are, there's just so much more we can do for the world that I'm, I'm kind of compelled to continue on that mission to continue on that focus. So it tends to have served us well, but I'm humble enough to recognize at some point, maybe they'll grow me and somebody else will do a better job. But in the meantime, I'm the guy. And I had someone on last week who's at a, a similar size. They'd been around for about 15 years and, and their story was like, 10 years of hell uh, where things you know weren't really going that great. They were going okay, but you know it wasn't amazing. And then they had their breakthrough years and everything changed. Was it similar for you? Like, did it take a long period of time to really feel like things were working or did it seem to click right away? Yeah, I would say, no, it definitely didn't click right away. When you're struggling to make payroll and you're trying to find a way to get it, like, no, those are not fun days. I think, like I say, time erodes memory and there's this nostalgia of how great it was. It was shitty. Like, I remember times it was weeks and we actually tried this one thing where we tried to work, you know, 18 hours a day because we wanted to be more productive. And after about three weeks, we're like walking around like zombies writing a half a line of code a day thinking we're getting stuff done. And it's like, guys, what does it matter with you? But it was just that intensity of, we just had so much to get down and we couldn't really look up for a long period of time. I do think there was a point at which it did click though. And, and I think that was getting, let's just call it mid two thousands when we started to resonate with the big players that we were capable enough and we had enough that they were prepared to commit to us and taking them on. That's when we get to the inside the tornado. It was chaotic. It was crazy. But if we didn't take that business on and work our way through it, we would never have the revenue to afford the investment to deliver on the promises we made. So we had to, we just had to get it done. And so that was probably the most chaotic time of our lives. Um, went from survival to chaos to starting to thrive and, and kind of that later 2000 when it's like a little more of rinse repeat. I don't want to, you know, a lot more credit to the growth in that phase, but, but still it was a lot of, we've got it now. Now we just need to replicate that success. So that was, uh, that's when we first started to feel a little bit more free. And I will tell you the other thing that made that really hard and, and, you know, good or bad, really good today, really hard at the time, we didn't really take any outside money. And so we were bootstrapped. We retained control. We did what we wanted to do, which I think, you know, we got to a point in late 2000s where we're like, oh, we might want to bring on some adult supervision, right? To hold us accountable to things we want to do because we really wanted to be a growth company. And that's when he started to take some outside money. But, you know, it's still minority investments. And I think what was really important, if you can do it as a founder, the ability for us at the time to retain our culture, to invest in our team and our people is not always obvious to PE firms or to VCs. It may be today at the time it wasn't, but there are things that as founders and leaders you want to do and you want to have control of, hold on as long as you can and believe me, it will pay off later. And we're feeling that today, but those early days of kind of just struggling through it are well worth it. Just look up once in a while and see you know, what it's going to look like in a few years. And it, it allows you to kind of remain that committed and that focused for that, that time frame and fight through it because it is absolutely worth it to get to the other side. Yeah. One thing that I've heard from my conversations with founders is they say that they can really trace the company's success back to a few key decisions that they made throughout the company's history. And typically it's like one, two, three big, big decisions. Do any big decisions like that come to mind where you say, wow, that really defined the company and, you know, shaped the trajectory or, you know, guided the trajectory of where we ended up going? Yeah. I mean, I think I alluded to it earlier, but I remember this to this day, there was a room of four of us, maybe five of us sitting in a room and we had one of the largest providers in the space that decided to use us. And that was taking up every minute of the day to try to service that customer to make them successful. 
and we recognize that kind of that word of mouth is very strong. And so not getting that right was huge. And another kind of large one came in, you know, another elephant is like, okay, we're ready to go. And I'm like, yeah, no, we're busy. They're like, are you nuts? I'm like, yeah, we're kind of busy not doing it. And we literally argued like, like brothers. And it was, you know, an hour of, you know, yelling back and forth and what you do not do, which ended up with, you know, and in the end, uh, you know, as much as I'd love to tell you a little opinion and close minded, I, you know, brother Mike was like, dude, we got to do this. Like if we don't, like that's going to seal our fate. Somebody else will get it. They'll be successful. And next thing they'll have competition. Let's take it and figure it out. We'll resource it. We'll put a deal together that makes sense and, and we'll get it. Then all I could think about is the work that was going to pile on my back. And that kind of got me to be a little defensive in terms of what we might do. And so that moment where we decided, and there are a number of companies I've read about that have had that exact critical moment of, do we take on and sacrifice quality or do we just keep moving forward and, and we'll figure it out as we go? That latter one was a critical moment for us to decide we're just going to go and we're going to deal with it. Or we're going to try to figure it out and we'll apologize. We need to apologize, but we're better to take the business than not. That was probably the most, most meaningful one. I think technology wise, I think people don't recognize how hard it is to scale. There's an assumption for those that aren't close enough to tech that it's like, yeah, no problem. And there are meaningful moments when scale can be a huge problem, certainly back in those days. And I recall there was a point where we were growing so fast that we literally were blowing, you know, coming apart at the seams and there wasn't enough processing power connected to us enough that we could afford that would allow us to deliver on all of the transactions that we're moving through. And we we literally re-platformed in a weekend. It was incredible. And you know, I think today I always ask my team, why can't we do that in a weekend? They're like, because uh, we do quality assurance now. Like, duh, we have tens of thousands of customers. What's the matter with you? I'm like, oh, okay. I don't want to go back to the good old days. But the reality is those are two big ones. And I think there was also a time in 2016 where, thank God we didn't do it. But we've seen like, gosh, it would make sense for us to go public, uh, given where multiples are at and kind of be irresponsible not to do it for our stakeholders. We're like, okay. And we had a bit of a misappropriation at the time that felt really bad and it was, but it was like, gosh, you don't have your controls in place. And so we decided, you know, let's pull back and we remain private. We got kind of controls. We got our, our operations intact. And we kind of now, I look up at that as probably the you know, the silver lining to that, although it was awful at the time, is that we get the benefits of being a private company and doing the things that we think make sense for the long term of the business versus driving for value for the next exit in two or three years for one of your shareholders. And that can drive you to do some funky things that aren't necessarily good for your customers or your business long term. So I would say those are three that kind of jump out. Early on, what do you think you got right to build trust and credibility with customers and to get them to to pay you guys money. That's something that I think all founders struggle with is getting those first customers. So what'd you get yep. right there? I think first and foremost, you have to, I mean, they're buying you. If you think they're buying your tech or your salesperson, you're wrong. They are buying you, they're buying your vision, they're buying your belief, and you are the best person to articulate that and get them excited about it. Nobody else can replicate your excitement for your business. And if you're not in market, you're losing a huge opportunity. So I was, I must have been at every single deal for the first five years, uh, Mike included. And we just, I think we're, you know, let's say social enough. And we had a, a commitment level to where we were going to be. And, and the other part that resonated extremely well, right? We were just, we were in it with them. We were partnering with them. We wanted a win-win. And the other part too, is if don't fool yourself by thinking that not getting a dollar from your customer is a good thing, 
that's awful. You need them committed financially. And so one of the tricks we used in the early days that helped us a lot was, well, two things. One was, listen, we need some funding to continue to build on the vision we have that's going to support you well. We're going to get you, we need you to prepay subscriptions because you have the balance sheet and the capital to fund that. It'll come off and later. So as we grew and they got to kind of uh, implemented more of our stuff, you know, they ended up having kind of the prepaid subscriptions would come off and then three years later would kick back up to where it would be, but it gave us the funding to do the work. We didn't have to go to outside money and allow them to be even more committed to us as a key partner. And so I, I would look for that. And the other thing I would do in the early days without question is never, ever build for a customer. And I can tell you 20 years ago, they were all doing it. You know, custom configuration, like that was the death of any software company. And so the other thing I'd say is build for market, have your customer become your product manager help them understand and convince you why you should build it for them. In fact, you can sell it to the rest of the market and leverage that as a great product roadmap that is coming from your customers and kind of drive that in versus pretend you know the market better. So those conversations always landed really well and having funding that came from your customer, not a, a VC, helped us kind of retain kind of the cap table. I know this can be kind of a hard question to answer sometimes, but I always like to hear hear the response what do you think your superpower is, Dave? Do you have a specific superpower? Uh, I think it's self-awareness. I think it's really important to understand. I have a sixth sense around people. And for me, that's I understand when things aren't going well, when the team dynamics are off, when and how customers are responding. I mean, some people sit in a room and they're like, that went well. I'm like, what went well about that person with their arms crossed kind of looking at you like they want to take your head off? Went well. Oh, what? What? And so I think it's an under kind of appreciated leadership skill of just having awareness of the room, because when you have that, you can react to that. You can change your demeanor. You can change your approach. You can revise on the fly and really drive to a level of engagement that gets the team, the customer, the partner kind of engaged and feeling valued. And I think every opportunity you have to engage is extremely valuable. And it's a, as much as we want to talk about it being a transactional business, it's a personal business. It really is. They want to buy from you, right? And if they don't want to buy from you, they're going to buy from somebody else they want to buy from. So those kind of social skills, those engagement skills that I think largely root in kind of self-awareness, how you behave. And then I would say the other part is living your values. But, you know, that I think that's it. I'm sure it could be something else. It sure as hell isn't my technical skills. I was a terrible developer. I realized that after hiring my first one, I'm like, oh, I'm due for management. There's no way I'm capable of doing code. So yeah, I think... That would probably be it. <laughs> what about the skill of storytelling? Um, from my conversations with the founders, a lot of them talk about the importance of storytelling. What role has storytelling played in your success, do you think? I think, I mean, I think it's important if you use the right way. I think if you don't use it the right way, it can kind of repel some new people that were part of that story. I think it's nice to appreciate your beginnings. I think that allows us to remain humble you know, Hebrews kills companies our size. And so it's just, you know, being storytelling in ways that support your culture, support why you're there and have everyone rooted in kind of those values is, is largely why I use that. But also being cautious not to over celebrate the past, but be more inclusive of the people that have joined recently and the bright star that's ahead of them and in retelling more current stories and get caught up in the past. I think that's, that's a cautionary tale. 
But I think, you know, people connect with those things. I think nobody wants to work for a transactional company. They want to work for a company that cares and, and people all through it that have real stories and kind of real connections. And I think those are the things that you, your leaders all need to talk about. And so really, really rooted in things that matter to your team that, you know, they want to celebrate and they want to talk about the company too. And so, you know, share the things that you think will resonate with them, get them included in storytelling. I think they become a big part of it. So don't make it about you, make it really about the company and, and the value you offer versus an individual. And I bring on a lot of investors and a lot of VCs, and that's something they talk a lot about is, you know, a founder's ability to tell them a story and, you know, show investors that they have a, a clear vision for the future and a story about the future. Has that been important for you as well? You know, having a, a clear, compelling narrative about the future as you have your conversations with investors? I think a little bit. I think most of that comes down to what's your confidence interval that you're going to be able to deliver a growth story in these with these kind of business units over time and and, and they'll pressure test that. So listen, I think every new investor is really excited about, you know, the founder story, but that in itself isn't going to get a deal done. I think that's of interest and they really look for some cues as to do, do they have grit? Can they kind of get through things in challenging times and how do they operate when things you know, or going sideways. And so they look for stories like that and how he reacted to it to determine whether you have kind of the, the gumption to be a leader they want to partner with. But the other part of that is really looking for the, not so much of vision. I think that is important, but not as important as, you know, what is horizon one and horizon two look like in your business? And are you making investments to continue down a path that delivers kind of profitable growth over time? And do you have a sense of what kind of three to five years looks like? But anybody who tells you what three to five years out looks like is lying anyway. So it's always just kind of, it's fun with numbers and fun with conversations, but that hasn't been kind of the crux of why they would or wouldn't invest in us. As we've talked about a few times, you've raised a lot of money from that journey and from the fundraising journey. Are there any tactical lessons that you've learned that you could share with founders? Yeah, I talked about it earlier and I think it's just the deferred gratification. <laughs> and I think that's just, if you can hold off, hold off. Uh, that's not always the case. But I think if you can, I would. I would say also when you think about raising money or kind of going through that that path, I think there's partner with the right partner. We did a lot of work on culture fit with our equity partners. And I think when I get into a board meeting with them, I don't only look forward to it, I appreciate the wisdom they bring. And so others are you know, got lots of money and they, they gave me a high evaluation and great. And next thing you know, it's just the worst situation in the world you got to manage. And it just creates something you don't, a distraction you need to be worried about. You have the right partner. It's not a distraction. It's huge value add. And so I operate with my equity partners on a regular basis because they offer a ton of value. They see other portfolio companies. So I would be a little more strategic about where you get money from and don't get hung up on the value. The value you're going to get thinking kind of in longer term. So don't think about the value of today, but think of what that value means to you in three to five years. And they can accelerate that in a way that you wouldn't be able to do on your own and accelerate in a way that's different than picking the wrong one. So the other thing I look at is, you know, don't take, you know, dirty term sheets and, you know, do things that are simple and make sense and then really get some help doing that. I would also, if you're not really astute there, hire a banker, get somebody to help you through it. Uh, you're going to find a way to get kind of that better relationship and more exposure to your business. And the less you have, the less you're going to get value. And the more you have, kind of the more advice, uh, more advice goes a long way. So those would be a couple of things. There's probably 20 things I'd talk about, but I, I would leave it at that. 
Now let's imagine that I'm uh, I'm 26 years old and I come to you and I say, Dave, I have this idea. I want to start a healthcare technology company. Based on everything you've learned over the last three decades, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give me before I start that journey? I would probably ask a few questions, but I remember this exact conversation when I went to my boss and I said the exact same thing. And his, his piece of feedback, which would be different than mine, was make sure you have a good exit strategy. I'm like, what the hell is that? So top concerns people can understand. And at 26, I had no idea what all of that stuff was, but uh, clearly I do now. I think what I would say to anybody looking to start their business is, you know, there's a couple of things you need. You really need to have a passion for that business. Uh, you really need to feel like you're going to do something different. So if you're just a me too, don't bother. Right. And so good luck to you. Uh, I think my advice would be find something that differentiates you that will allow you to win in the markets you go to serve more than 50% of the time. And if you can't do that, then you probably shouldn't start it or go find a way before you do that. So people get caught up in technology and it's never about the tech. It's really about delivering value and disruption. And that's when you win. And if you're going to go start a new category, uh, you better have a lot of money behind you because that is really expensive and second in wins. So really try to understand your category, leverage things like Blue Ocean to understand your disruptors and know how you're going to win before you win. And then get laser focused on doing that in the markets you want to serve and get really close to the customers. Don't let somebody else do that. You need to do that. You need to be the authority and you really need to want to change something because if you don't really believe it deep down, nobody's going to follow you. And final question for you here, Dave, let's zoom out three to five years from today. And I know you said you don't want to predict the future, but what's that vision? <laughs> what do you hope the company is going to look like? Yeah, I think we've already kind of done a lot of that work actually. So I think when I look at the business, what I would tell you we look like is a company that's doing a lot of what we're doing today is kind of the base, but where I think the value comes in is overlaying kind of AI and where kind of large language models land, where a caregiver taking care of a patient as what I would tell you the problem today is not only is there, we talked about information not moving, now we've got an abundance of information moving, they don't know what to do with it. What I envision our future is, is is really intelligent alerting and intelligent action, which is as you go to work with a patient, mom, dad, or a vulnerable person, you have perfect information to know what they need, what they want for themselves, and you have the information or here are the three things that are going to get the best outcome for that person. But that takes a lot of intelligence on top of a lot of data to surface things from a clinical perspective that help them be unbelievably effective at delivering care and address the staffing crisis we have in healthcare where people are moving out, which means we need to be really effective at the time we spend with people. And I feel like with our technology and our alerting and notification platform, we can enable clinicians and providers across the country with an ability to take great care of people at a much lower cost, reduce this unnecessary spend, drive greater health equity across the country. And that obviously there's technology to drive that, but that's the vision simply stated is if you think about children moving through healthcare and you think about if you happen to have children, your own child, they get that best care possible because you're the advocate and you'll break through walls to do it. Think about somebody who doesn't have an advocate who happens to be older. Our technology is that parent that will shape them through healthcare and get them the best outcome possible for themselves. And that comes with synthesizing that data to a point where they can literally get, you know, preventative and predictive care to get the best outcome for them because we've seen it a thousand times before through computer generated models. So that's where I think we need to go. It might be a 10 year plan. And then I'd have to involve some robots in there in care delivery, but 
you know, in the next three to five, I think that's definitely achievable. And we're super excited to deliver on that. Amazing. I love it. All right, Dave, we are way over on time. So <laughs> I won't I won't hold you any longer here on a Friday, but thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I know the audience is going to as well. Just in case any founders want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Uh, You're all on social. I think that's probably the best place to do it. And if there's a desire to reach out, LinkedIn's probably the best place to find me. But um, I'm happy to share any have questions in that, in that forum. Amazing. Dave, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. And again, really love this conversation. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. All right. Keep in touch.